It was always important to me from the, my very beginning of reporting on Venezuela to talk to as many people as possible and talk to uh, all sides, both sides, but also to get out into the country, into the barrios, into the countryside, and just talk to lots of ordinary people. Hello and welcome to a new edition of Veneco, a podcast on Venezuelan democracy and social movements. My name is Juan Andres Misle, your host in today's episode. Our theme song is courtesy of Amazonic Vibes remixing Simon Diaz's La Tonada del Tormento. And this is episode 14. And before introducing today's guest, I just want to make a quick parenthesis and highlight that when Veneco first aired some years ago, the main goal was to showcase some of the best books on Venezuelan democracy and grassroots movements. We were uh, lucky enough to brief Dragon in the Tropics by Javier Corrales and Michael Penfold, but also Alejandro Velasco's Barrio Rising on the history of the 23 Enero neighborhood in Caracas. We have largely shifted uh, to discussing other academic and journalistic work in order to better understand the complexity of Venezuela's changing politics, culture, and society. Having said that, I'm extremely thrilled to welcome today's guest by bringing back kind of like the original spirit of Veneco. Today's guest is William Newman. He was a journalist for the New York Times for 15 years and served as the Times Andes Bureau Chief from 2012 to 2016, based in Caracas. He is also the author of the new book, Things Are Never So Bad They Can't Get Worse, Inside the Collapse of Venezuela. So without further ado, William, thank you so very much for accepting this invitation. I just want to say I really enjoyed your book. And yeah, let's get started. I'm very excited for this discussion. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast, Juan. William, let me first congratulate you on this enormously important book. So for those of us who try to take a more academic approach at understanding Venezuela, this book, I have to say, is really a gem. It is extremely well-researched and does exactly what one would expect a journalist to do in the midst of a polarized society. It talks to all stakeholders on the ground, both at the elite level, but also the common, let's say, Venezolano de a pie. And it really amazed me the amount of access you received, but uh, perhaps as important, I was also impressed by the amount of humanity you dedicated when writing this book. It's steer clear of the echo chambers that pollute analysis on the country. So I guess my first question to you would be, why write a book on Venezuela? I understand you were based in Caracas at the time, but as the Andes Bureau Chief for the New York Times, you also oversaw developments in Colombia, Ecuador, Bolivia, and other countries. So why Venezuela? What motivated you to write this? I, uh, I lived in Venezuela uh, from 2012 to 2016, lived in Caracas, and um, returned many times afterwards either to uh, visit uh, friends or to continue reporting, first for the Times and then for the book. And um, Venezuela uh, just became a very special place to me. I made a, a wonderful connections there with the people. Um, it was a place that, that means a lot to me. Uh, uh, I was very fortunate to be able to cover the country during very interesting times. Uh, and it's true that I covered uh, lots of other countries when I was the Andes region bureau chief. I was covering Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, and eventually just about every other country in South America. 
but at that time, the majority of the news uh, was from Venezuela, or at least more news came out of Venezuela than any other country. And uh, I was fortunate in the timing also because I was there in 2012, which was the height of the oil boom. Uh, uh, oil was over $120 a barrel. Chavez was running for re-election, so I got to see Chavez in action. I got to see um, Venezuela when uh, it was full of oil money. Of course, I got to cover the the campaign, the election, then the death of Chavez and the beginning of the whole Maduro era. And I got to see the beginning of the decline and the I saw the boom turn to bust and then everything that has come since then. And so it's a it's a it's an extremely important story. It's an extremely compelling story. Um, it's a very human story. And so I was very interested in finding a way to to tell that story uh, for American readers. And then fortunately, in 2019, uh, when the whole Guaido episode started, all of a sudden Venezuela was on the front page of the newspapers every day and on the TV news. And there was tremendous interest in Venezuela. Um, and that's when I was able to start working on the, the book project. One of the main recurring themes in your book, and I should probably say spoiler alert, is how you consistently revisit the phenomenon of the electricity crisis in Venezuela, particularly as experienced since the infamous 2019 blackouts. You were able to speak with workers at the state-owned electricity company, Corpolec, as well as how regular Venezuelans in Maracaibo, Ciudad Guyana, and elsewhere experienced the series of repeated blackouts. Of course, you talk about how the government dealt with the situation, the amount of intimidation and pressure that Corpolec workers endured. But overall, this literary method you employ of going back to the blackouts really, I think, is representative and perhaps a snapshot at the country's political crisis. But I want to leave it up to you to explain to us, why do the blackouts play such an important theme in your book? Well, in, in one sense, it was entirely accidental, because when you go to report a story, you don't necessarily know what you're going to find or how that story is going to develop. So um, I started to conceive of the book uh, before the blackouts started, which was in, in March of 2019. But then, of course, by the time I got to Venezuela to start doing the reporting on the on the book itself, um, the the blackouts were um, had become sort of a central uh, element of what was going on in the country, and they were a tremendously powerful metaphor also uh, for the breakdown of a society and a nation. And uh, I didn't realize initially when I was doing the reporting how central that would become to telling the story, because when you're on the ground, you're just sort of running around and and talking to as many people as you can. Um, and it also wasn't clear that it was going to continue. I mean, there was no, no one understood, or you couldn't know that it was going to continue happening throughout the year. Um, there were the first series of three blackouts in March, and then they were repeated again and again uh, as the year went on. And my initial interest was I got to, I returned to Venezuela uh, a couple months after the first uh, bunch of blackouts, and I was very interested in the looting that had taken place in Maracaibo um, during the first blackout. And in Maracaibo, um, which really had the worst of all the, the, the blackouts and much of the crisis really in, in the country, uh, the power had been out for five days in that first blackout. And people started looting on the fourth day for a variety of reasons, but for many people because they ran out of food. Um, and so I was really interested in 
what in the psychology of those people um, and what made a person, you know, what made a person who goes to a, a grocery store uh, over and over in the course of the year, a customer one day and a looter the next. And so I went to Maracaibo and I talked to lots of people who had participated in the looting from the looter's perspective. And um, I also talked to lots of people who had been, who, you know, owned stores or what have you, um, and then ended up focusing on a woman who was the a manager in a hotel that was destroyed in the looting. And so I was really interested in both sides of that equation. And then as I went on, I started to talk to people on the Corporal X side. Um, and just by uh, chance, I happened to run across the one person who was on duty uh, in the um, the main uh, control room at Corporal Lec when the first blackout hit. Um, and his story was quite uh, interesting as well. And I talked to many of the the workers who had worked to um, recover the electrical system. And um, when I was writing the book, uh, I, one of the things I needed to do was tell the history of Venezuela so that people could understand what happened today. But I didn't want readers to sort of begin with, you know, the independence struggle, begin with uh, the, the colonial period or before. And I realized that the, 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 the blackouts become sort of a spine of the book, like a thread that runs throughout. And that was a way to bring the immediacy and the, the current moment to the very beginning of the book and, and disperse it throughout the book um, and bring and, and give readers a flavor of, of what was going on as, as the crisis became most intense uh, from the start. So we've talked about the gross mismanagement in the electricity sector. But there also appears that there is another underlying understanding of Venezuelan society in your book, and that is the idea of oil solving any and all problems in Venezuela's economy, politics, and culture. So I have the book here in front of me, and the cover of your book is what we can see looks like an oil field with oil dripping through the book cover. But I want to emphasize how Venezuelans have grown accustomed to this resource because there's a chapter in your book called The Man Under the Palm Tree. And in the chapter, uh, it's about a man who once planted a field of lechosa, I guess what we could call a papaya here. And despite the lack of effort at working the land, the lechosa would always grow. I found this to be so fascinating because at the end of the day, isn't this also part of the problem? The man says, and I quote, that's Venezuela. Why should I work hard if nature gives me everything I need? End quote. Can you elaborate to us what you meant to conceive with this anecdote? Sure. And, and um, that's uh, an idea that I got from talking to Venezuelans. And you can read that same idea throughout a lot of Venezuelan uh, commentary. For instance, Cabrujas is sort of... Uh, One of my is uh, my Santo Padron um, in, in in Venezuela in, in, in a lot of ways, and he writes about that concept a lot. It's this idea that oil wealth is just there for the taking. That all you have to do, in a sense, is poke a hole in the ground, and out comes the money, and uh, that that creates a that feeds a certain mentality of almost uh, instant gratification. That the idea that oil isn't the product of years and years and decades and generations of hard work and toil to, to build something, but simply uh, something where uh, riches are right there for the taking. And a lot of people, a lot of Venezuelans will tell you that that's a very powerful uh, theme in the country's history. And, you know, there's other things that are related to that. Essentially, 
because the oil in Venezuela is the source of wealth in the country, the, the primary, almost the, the unique source of wealth in the country, and it's entirely controlled by the government. And so the government then becomes central, not only to the political life in the country, but to the economic life of the country. And so people tend to tap into the, the government in order to access that oil wealth, rather than perhaps pursuing other kinds of, of economic activity. And it creates this sort of patron-client uh, relationship between the government and its citizens. Um, I think one of the, the metaphors that I use is that for uh, Venezuelans, the, the government is like a giant ATM that they can uh, just go to uh, basically withdraw their portion of the, the oil riches. William, your career as the New York Times and the bureau chief began in 2012, so not long before the death of Hugo Chavez and the start of the Nicolás Maduro presidency. And by the time you begin your tenure in Caracas, you entered what was essentially an already a very polarized society. You describe it in your book as the shouting country after you sat down and spoke with Ismael García, an opposition politician. At the same time, as mentioned earlier, you had an impressive access to people in all levels of power. You also spoke with Rafael Ramírez, André Gizarra, Enrique Capriles, and others. So it seems you were able to extract valuable insights from the shouters, the people doing the shouting, let's call it that. So what conclusions have you drawn from listening to Venezuelan politicians and officials? What will it take for us to listen to each other? And what is it that opposition and Chavista elites don't understand or get from each other? Um, that's a great question. I, I guess first I want to say that um, it was always important to me from the, my very beginning of reporting on Venezuela to talk to as many people as possible and talk to uh, all sides, both sides, but also to get out into the country, into the barrios, into the countryside and just talk to lots of ordinary people. So I have been fortunate to, to talk to many of the elites, but one of the things that to me is the most one of the most important parts of the book is that I uh, tell a lot of the stories of ordinary people. Um, and as I was traveling around the country in 2019 um, and talking to people and they would tell me the story of their lives, I came to see that often when somebody tells you the story of their life, they're also telling you the story of their country. In other words, their lives parallel the ups and downs of Venezuela over the last 20 years. Um, so it was important to me to uh, make that a really big element of the book, to make it more concrete and more human, um, rather than talking about economics and politics and having it be some sort of abstract thing. I really wanted to uh, focus on the human uh, impact and the human stories there. So. You know, I talked to a woman in Paitare who is having trouble feeding her seven children. I talked to a human rights lawyer who was kidnapped by the FIS, etc. But then I also did, uh, you know, go out and talk to a lot of the political elites. I was especially interested in talking to people who either were inside the government or had been inside the government, because it was important for me to try to understand the mentality of uh, Maduro and the people around him. And so I went out and talked to Rafael Ramirez uh, in in Italy, uh, uh, Andre Cisara. Uh, they've both been uh, ministers in Chavez's government and in Maduro's government. Both of them had, had broken uh, with Maduro. And other people, uh, Temir Borras, uh, who had been very close to Maduro, 
uh, until he was sort of exiled from Chavismo. And then also I talked to many other uh, ex-ministers who don't appear in the book, but they helped sort of inform my understanding of how the government operated. And at the same time, I was talking to lots of people on the um, on the opposition side. Uh, you mentioned Capriles, of course, Juan Guaido, uh, Leopoldo Lopez, and, and plenty of others. And uh, there are people, there is a dialogue that go that has been going on and has intensified over the last year or two between certain people in the opposition and the government. Capriles is one who talks to the government. There are many others. Um, and then there's, of course, the the you know what we could call the official dialogue or negotiation that took place in Mexico for a period of time and then was broken off and has never resumed, even though they keep claiming on both sides that they're eager to to get back to it. There are people uh, in the opposition who, uh, well, the last time I spoke to Capriles, which was last year in November when I was in uh, Venezuela during the elections there and was doing some reporting for a, a story on the economy that ran in the Atlantic, uh, I talked to Capriles and he said that Venezuela needs to get away from this zero-sum game where, uh, you know, your goal is to destroy your opponent. And that goes for both the opposition and the and the government. In other words, there has to be some kind of uh, sense that the ultimate political solution in Venezuela is going to involve both people on the opposition side and people in Chavismo, because Chavismo is still uh, a broad movement that, for better or worse, many people in Venezuela identify with. And so they have to get to this place where they can talk about the the well-being of the country and have that as a as a common goal. Now, is that possible? Um, that's or when would that become possible? It's very hard to say because both sides are still uh, they see it as an existential fight. And certainly for the many people in the opposition, it has been an existential fight. Uh, opposition leaders have been killed or have died. Many have been put in prison. Um, uh, and at the same time, on the government side, there has to be a, a way out. There has to be some sort of exit that people can conceive of rather than, you know, that's not, you know, being obliterated or thrown in jail. Uh, it's a very difficult, uh, very difficult equation. Yeah, or being thrown in Guantanamo, as former National Security Advisor John Bolton once suggested on social media. Maduro's under indictment in the United States, and it was a very strange thing that the Trump administration did uh, by saying almost simultaneously, you know, that it's the 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 goal of U.S. policy to have a negotiated solution in Venezuela, and yet, you know, we you know are looking to to jail Maduro. I mean, Maduro is clearly responsible through policy mistakes, through corruption, through tolerating corruption. Uh, through repression, uh, responsible for the tragedy that is Venezuela, and yet he holds power, and, and you have to be able to to talk to him if you're going to somehow find uh, a way back to democracy. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with our conversation with William Newman, journalist and author of Things Are Never So Bad They Can't Get Worse, Inside the Collapse of Venezuela. Stay tuned. You're listening to the sounds of Amazonic Vibes and its new release, Arabic, 
out from Sunkissed Records, available everywhere you can buy or stream music. Electronic music production concept since 2012. If you've enjoyed Beneco's theme song, be sure to check out Amazonic and its new label, Sunkissed Records. Follow Amazonic on Instagram, Twitter, and social media. And now, back to our conversation with William Newman, journalist and author of Things Are Never So Bad They Can't Get Worse, Inside the Collapse of Venezuela. We were just talking about this tendency to shout over each other in Venezuela. But I think this is actually a good segue to my next question, because there has been this recent, perhaps, depolarizing debate over the idea that Venezuela se arregló, the idea that Venezuela has been fixed. And you hear this mostly in the cities and in wealthier parts of the country where there's a boom in bodegones and new restaurants and dollarized services. And yet, this process, which began in 2019, has only exacerbated inequalities inside the country. And my personal take is that this partially explains this intensification of working-class Venezuelans migrating to other countries. I was just looking at the numbers published by the Panamanian Migration Authorities, and it appears more than 23,000 Venezuelans crossed the Darien Gap last month about 76% of all crossings, more than any other nationality. So with this in mind, William, what is your input on this debate claiming that Venezuela is fixed? Of course, I say this cognizant that these are things one hears from urban bubbles, but how do you interpret these recent changes in Venezuela's economy? No, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, first off, uh, I was speaking to a Panamanian official just the other day who told me that their estimate is this year there are going to be 200,000 uh, migrants moving through um, Panama on foot uh, during this year, this calendar year. And I asked him what it had been five years ago, and he told me, I think, uh, 10,000, 20,000. I can't remember the number, but it's, you know, it's 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 uh, incredibly higher. And the majority of those 200,000 are Venezuelans, um, certainly not all of them, but uh, but the majority are. And that shows the level of desperation uh, because it's a horrible journey. I mean, just to go through Darien is incredibly dangerous, uh, grueling. And once you do that, you still have to go through Central America, Mexico, and then you get to the uncertainty of the United States. I talked to a young Venezuelan woman in New York uh, about a week ago uh, who had made that trip. And uh, she crossed the border uh, and ended up in New York. She knows nobody in New York. She just sort of is here at the mercy of the city almost. Um, and it was just stunning to talk to somebody who would make that kind of risky trip without even knowing what there was at the other end. So that says a lot about the desperation of Venezuelans and the continued uh, uh, difficulty of uh, of life there and the crisis. Um, in terms of this whole thing about Venezuela, se arreglo, to me, that's just sort of a non-debate. I mean, yes, people, somebody wrote that on, on Twitter and somebody latched onto it and people started to argue about it. But of course, Venezuela hasn't been fixed. I mean, it's a ridiculous thing. Yes, the economy has started to grow again, finally, and that's a good thing. Uh, I was in Venezuela, as I said, at the end of last year and wrote about this economic bubble um, and that was right about the time that people were starting to use this phrase, Venezuela se arreglo, 
And uh, I hope to get back uh, to Venezuela soon uh, to see uh, how things have developed since then. Um, but uh, Venezuela went through an unprecedented economic collapse. It lost approximately 80% of GDP or of its economic activity, um, which is stunning. I mean, when you look at the U.S. during the Great Depression, the U.S. lost 25% of GDP and the Great Depression lasted essentially four years and then the economy started to grow again. And in Venezuela, they've gone through eight years of contraction, uh, which is just uh, mind boggling. But eventually the economy would start growing again. And that's a good thing. I mean, when I wrote in, in the book, uh, you you would have read about Ilda, who's a young woman in Peitari, who's got a, a seven kids. And essentially, when I first got to know her, she couldn't feed her family, her her children, they would eat once a day, sometimes twice a day. Her youngest child's teeth were turning black and falling out for lack of calcium. Um, she would keep her kids from school, uh, home from school on some days because they hadn't eaten and there was no point in sending them to school when they couldn't concentrate or pay attention because of hunger. Um, now I talk to Hilda, uh, Hilda still pretty regularly and she's doing much better. And the reason that she's doing much better is because there is uh, some economic growth in Venezuela and because the country has been dollarized. I mean, that's been a big part of the, the, the stabilization of the economy. And so, whereas before there was zero, there was no food in the house. Now, sometimes she makes $200, $300 a month. And what she does, is she repairs um, electrodomesticos, uh, washing machines and refrigerators and that sort of thing. And so that's a good thing that there's an increase in economic activity and some poor people um, are able to make a living, whereas before they could not. Obviously, it's not evenly distributed. And the other thing is that um, when you have a situation like Venezuela's and the economy starts to grow again, the immediate uh, appearance is of tremendous growth, because if you're at one and you go to two, well, you say, oh, we've doubled. But right. if you used to be at 100, well, you're still doing pretty poorly if you're at two. But there is the perception of, oh, all these things are going on. And also Venezuela is full of money uh, still. I mean, there's still uh, people making lots of money in Venezuela. There's still people who, who you know, there's an elite that always uh, had money to spend. And then, you know, another factor is the sanctions because um, that's had a couple of different effects. I mean, sanctions on individuals tied to the government has forced people to either stay in, to both stay in Venezuela and to keep their money in Venezuela because they can't take it out and they can't spend it outside. And there's also plenty of Venezuelans with bank accounts in the U.S. who aren't connected to the government, but they have seen their bank accounts close because so many banks and uh, are uh, uncertain about the sanctions, worried about being caught up in the sanctions, and they're just closing people's bank accounts because they see Venezuela attached to it. So there is money staying in the country that people want to spend. And and uh, also in Caracas, uh, one of the things that I noticed or that I saw was that a lot of people from the provincia have been moving, people with money are moving to Caracas. And it's especially true of uh, Puerto Ordaz and Maracaibo. And so that brings more more money into the capital. And so you have all these restaurants and bars that are full all the time. And so there's this appearance of increased, I mean, there is increased economic activity. I mean, by one estimate, the economy was going to grow 20% this year. And it may very well do that. And as I say, it's a good thing that the economy is growing because we're talking about millions of ordinary people who are desperate to um, be able to work and feed their families. 
So I don't want to spend too much time talking about US foreign policy in this conversation, but your book does spend an important amount of time detailing the failures of the Trump administration vis-a-vis Venezuela policy. And I always tend to remember and think back at what some have called the uh, Bay of Piglets invasion or Operation Gideon a couple of years ago as perhaps the low point in Venezuelan opposition's attempt to overthrow the Maduro regime. And as we mentioned, as we've been mentioning in this conversation, part of the problem, I think, is how stakeholders are not really able to go beyond their respective echo chambers when it comes to viable solutions out of the crises. I think we agree the U.S. should not be deciding winners and losers in Venezuela. But what do you perceive would be a constructive U.S. foreign policy towards Venezuela? Who should they speak with and to what ends? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that, I mean, to some degree, the Biden folks were, I mean, they inherited a policy from the Trump people that uh, what I what I said about, what I say about uh, Venezuela policy under Trump was that, Venez- that the U.S. didn't have a, a a Venezuela foreign policy, they had a Florida election strategy that used Venezuela because what Trump did is that he saw that Venezuela was a, a, a subject that he could use to drive Hispanic votes in, in South Florida in the uh, midterms and then again in, in the presidential election. Um, but it wasn't, the policy wasn't designed to improve uh, conditions in Venezuela. The Biden people have really sort of, they came in, I think, with the attitude of, there's no way to win uh, in Venezuela. And so they sort of ignored it and wished that it would go away. Uh, Biden did give TPS to Venezuelans in the U.S., temporary protective status, which is something that he promised to do uh, when he was running for office. And that benefits uh, a lot of people. Uh, Strangely, the execution of that policy was really badly done. And I saw some polling that showed that approval of Biden among Hispanics in South Florida, and especially among Venezuelans, dropped significantly after TPS. And the reason uh, I believe and what the pollsters believed was that so many people had an expectation that they would quickly be approved for TPS, but it was so badly done that people spent years and and in some cases a year or more waiting to find their status approved. And um, I think there was a lot of anger justifiably over that. When it comes down to U.S. policy towards Venezuela, there's a few elements. You have sanctions. Um, you have individual sanctions against people connected to the government, and then these general sanctions that have been very destructive to the Venezuelan economy and therefore to ordinary Venezuelans, um, but obviously haven't done anything to uh, to change the state of the the political status quo in the country. And then you have the U.S. support for the opposition um, and its continued insistence that Juan Guaido is president of the country. And I think that um, in particular, I mean, all these things need to be addressed. Uh, I think the intriguing thing about the U.S. um, continuing to call Guaido president is that that has really that, that has helped to stunt the ability of the opposition itself to recalibrate and to reform itself. Um, the opposition over the last year or two years has gone through tremendous internal changes. Uh, most of the main political parties in one way or another have essentially blown up or splintered or 
gotten into these very bitter internal uh, leadership fights, in many cases sort of egged on by the government, but those internal divisions in the parties were there to begin with. And uh, there is a recalibration going on, but as long as the U.S. continues to say, oh, actually, the opposition is quite a simple thing led by the unitary platform and Juan Guaido, I don't think that that helps uh, the opposition itself uh, recalibrate um, and, re- and, and adjust. And then the sanctions, you know, this isn't a popular opinion, but I think the sanctions have been a complete failure. Maduro is stronger today. Um, and the opposition is weaker than they were in 2017 when the when the general sanctions began under Trump, the general economic sanctions, and you know also Maduro stronger and the opposition weaker than 2019 when the Guaido thing began. So clearly the policy hasn't been effective. I think that if you remove what would the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela, which is the thing that perhaps should concern us the most is the direct cause of the economic collapse. And therefore, economic growth in Venezuela would be the most important way to relieve the economic crisis. If you remove the sanctions, which the sanctions didn't cause the economic collapse, but they certainly deepened it and have retarded its, um, and have retarded recovery in the country. Uh, If you remove the sanctions, that allows for, you know, that, that makes economic growth easier. And what happens if the economy grows? Some of these millions of people that have left the country will return. Let's let those people go home, work, feed their families, and then vote in the election in 2024 and see what happens. That would be my, but of course, I don't make those decisions. Finally, William, and you've been incredibly generous with your time. There's just so much to dissect from your book. But I want to finalize with your concluding thoughts about regular Venezuelans. And I was very struck in your book how, despite the corruption, despite the gross economic mismanagement, the authoritarianism, many of the regular Venezuelans you spoke with in the slums or Los Barrios Populares, whether it's this Chavista who runs a government-run library or some of the workers at Corpoelec who, despite being threatened and repressed, still identify themselves as Chavistas and remain committed to the Maduro government. How do you explain this? You know, we know that politics, perhaps more often than not, inspires a an emotional reaction to reality. What is it you think keeps these people believing in the Bolivarian project? No, that's a great question, and and I um one of the things that's always fascinated me is why people believe the things they do, and why people continue to believe in something despite you know, all sorts of reasons to to break with those beliefs. Um, and so uh, I've always in, you know, in all of my reporting in Venezuela from the very beginning, I always, um, uh, both. I mean, I enjoyed talking to Chavistas. I enjoyed talking to both sides. But, um, uh, you know, I've always spent a lot of time talking to people on the Chavista side. And when I was working on the book, um, I got in these, conversations, I found myself in in conversations with people who, despite the collapse, um, were still true believers. Um, I don't have an answer as to why exactly that is, but I I mean, I can tell a couple of stories. I mean, one is that um, one of these, uh, I talked to one of these corporate workers, and we, you know, talked many times and became friendly. And one time I was sitting with him and his wife, and 
we were talking about all the terrible things that were going on in the country and how Korpolek was a ruin. And this is a person who had been persecuted by the, the leadership of Korpolek and driven out of the, the company. Um, and, uh, you know, talking about the economic crisis. And I said, well, if there was an election today, who would you vote for? And they both said immediately, without hesitation, Maduro. And I, I was just shocked by that. And I said, why? When we talked about how this group of people who run the government have essentially, you know, presided over the ruin of the country. And they said, well, we're socialists and we um, believe that the road to socialism isn't necessarily straight uh, and narrow. It's, uh, uh, we're not in a good situation right now, but it's our, it's our duty to vote for the party and follow our leadership, whether or not that leadership at this moment is, um, is good. And when these people talk about socialism, I mean, these are people of, you know, people of good faith. These are good citizens. These are people who want their country to uh, thrive. Um, for them, socialism means being on the side of the poor and the powerless and wanting a country that's not, you know, impoverished. Now, <laughs> the party that they support and continue to support has impoverished the country. Um, but somehow... What I see in the book is that I have a lot of sympathy for people who continue to believe based on some kind of good faith. You know, uh, I don't have any sympathy for the leadership that tries to sort of strike the same notes, but obviously is deeply cynical and interested only in, in keeping itself in power. There was another man, this guy you mentioned, who was who ran a uh, a government bookstore and he told me something what many people had told me that year in Venezuela. He said, you know, I used to wear size 36 pants and now I wear size 34 because just about everybody was eating less. And, you know, he said, oh, well, you know, we eat a couple times a week, whereas, I mean, a couple times a day, whereas we used to eat three times a day. And, you know, we don't get to eat a lot of the meat and stuff we used to eat. We're eating lentils. But he said, oh, you know, it turns out lentils are really good for you. So, you know, the crisis has taught us better nutrition. I, I don't have an answer. I just... uh that's how many people are. I mean, you can find people like that in this country, in any country. I think that people have a very deep need to feel a sense of belonging to something bigger than themselves. And that can be socialism and Chavismo or Trumpism and MAGA or any number of other things. Um, I think that's what one of the things that keeps um, people from seeing only the good parts when the bad parts are so obvious to someone outside the group of true believers. I think that there's also an element in this of populism, an important element, because the, the sort of central dynamic of populism is that um, there's the dynamic of the people versus the enemies of the people, the in-group versus the elites, the, the follow, followers of the leader versus the, the everyone else. And if you are a true believer, that is a, a real badge of belonging uh, in that kind of dynamic. So I think that also helps explain what we see with this phenomenon of people who, who are true believers in the context of Venezuela. William Newman was the New York Times Andes Bureau Chief from 2012 to 2016, while based in Caracas. He is the author of Things Are Never So Bad They Can't Get Worse, Inside the Collapse of Venezuela. Please read this book. It's one of the most up-to-date and complete takes on contemporary Venezuela, and I really can't recommend it enough. Please read it. William... 
thank you so much for speaking with us. I really wish you the best of luck. It was a fantastic chat. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Thank you. And this was episode 14 of Veneco. Theme song by Amazonic Vibes and Simon Diaz. My name is Juan Andres Misley.